When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This is the ESPN Aussie Hoops Hour. Kane Pittman and Olga Norlich with just one round to play in the NBL regular season. Uh, plenty of podcasts still to come, and we know that we must be getting near the postseason because Olga demanded that we pull out the blazers and wear jackets on this podcast. Olga, I'm not going to... Hey, hey, no, you're going to no, say, no, you're gonna no, say no, that no, I'm setting no. you up. I'm saying that I support you bringing some professionalism to this podcast. Kane, you were at work. You did the pregame for this... For this uh, this Thunder Magic game, you <laughs> rocked up wearing your nice suit, and I'm just wearing my, my trusty old T-shirt, and I figured, damn, I've got to match this. So I went, and obviously you were late again because you you live in a perennial s- snowstorm. Um, yes. and so yeah, I went and got a jacket and put it on so I can match the attire here because um, that's what the show deserves. Okay, well said. And the last point is the most important one, but no, you are uh, right there. And look, the majority of people are listening to this on the audio platform, so they're like, boys, we can't even see us. So let's get right into it. We say this at the start of every single podcast. If you haven't done so yet, subscribe, turn the notifications on, and you'll know every single time a new show drops. We're looking at Wednesday afternoons uh, right through the NBL postseason, but we'll figure it out with scheduling. So the only way to know, as I said, turn the notifications on, subscribe, and you'll get any other podcast we drop right throughout uh, the postseason as we roll through. The best place to start here, I think, is just asking you, Ogs. Last week, we discussed whether the top six was locked. And really, we knew that one team was going to miss out. That team was going to be out of Illawarra, Brisbane, New Zealand, and Sydney. Okay, so one round down. A couple of those teams played two games. Uh, how do you yep. feel about that scenario right now? Because as it sits, the Sydney Kings going for a three-peat. They're on the outside looking in. So I don't think the top six is locked, right? Again, I, I didn't think so last week. I don't think so now. Uh, it just, it always feels like we're in for one more twist. Yes. And I imagine another twist is coming. In this case, we spoke about it on Headline or Storyline, the column we do with, with Pete Hawley. It's all eyes on that Brisbane-New Zealand game. Cool. It's, and, and in my and I think mathematically, there are, there are different options that could come based on that game. But it very much feels like uh, the winner of that game goes through and the loser <laughs> is more than likely on the way out. But that's primarily the case for Brisbane. Brisbane doesn't have the percentage to play around with. That's that's do or die for them. New Zealand loses, then they need to go beat Adelaide and then they're playing with some percentage. Um, obviously, the swing thing there is the Sydney Southeast game that comes after that. Uh, if Brisbane loses, then they would need... Sydney to lose that game, which it doesn't look like they should, but we said that last time they played Southeast. So who knows, right? I don't know what the twist is going to be, but it's the NBL. We've uh, There's always a twist at the end of the season, and we're going to get one here. Is there, outside of the, let's do this, outside of that Brisbane-New Zealand game, which we know is the, the one that will basically just, it, that's like the first thing that domino that needs to fall before everything else happens. Outside of that game, which game do you feel is, the one that will have the most implications on the rest of, of the season and the, and the league. So I don't think this is the game that everyone listening to this podcast and sitting back at home is desperate to watch. 
but it is the game that I am maybe the most intrigued to watch because I have no idea what's going to happen. And when I sat down last weekend, very excited, and we discussed it, the Illawarra Hawks and the Sydney Kings, and we said, okay, this is a really difficult final four games for the Hawks. You asked me, what game would the Hawks actually be favorite in in their final four? And I said, well, they should be favorite against the Sydney Kings because they can't be trusted. And the Kings were awful in the first half, and they didn't look like a team that cares yeah. anymore. They looked like they'd given up on the season. There was no fight, and the Hawks were the team that were playing for their season. So I can't wait to see this game against the Southeast Melbourne Phoenix. It looks like, again, obviously, they're going to be missing some key pieces. So if your season's on the line and you desperately need to win to get into, into the playing tournament and you actually care about it, you should go and blow the doors off the Southeast Melbourne Phoenix. And yet, I'm not that confident that they're going to do it. They should do it. They have the talent to do it. They are a significantly more talented team. No question, based on the availability. But I, I'm not sure if they're going to do it. So I can't wait to watch the Kings and the Phoenix. So two things on this one. The Southeast Melbourne Phoenix, the, the, the injury thing is really weird right now. So Gary Brown didn't play their last game. Uh, Matt Kenyon was back. Mitch Creek didn't play their last game. There, there was a sense when you speak to people around here that Mitch Creek has like effectively shut it down. Yep. He has, he's got some, he's got a, a deal with another team in the off season and just sort of waiting to go to that team. Southeast Melbourne Phoenix season is over. So you don't need to play. But there are whispers going around yesterday that Mitch Creek wants to play. And well, of a part of that, and a, but a part of that is just to act spoiler. Yeah. which they did to an extent in their last game against Sydney, which could have just been a really lovely win for Sydney to have yeah. in their pocket. But they didn't because Mitch Creek came out and blew the doors off them. And so there's a sense that he wants to play. The sense that I get is that Gary Brown will play. So they're going to be like largely healthy. I don't know how healthy they're going to be like on the court, but at the very least, they're going to be available in this game. When it comes to Sydney in this game, they need to do the exact opposite of what they did against Illawarra. So against Illawarra, that was their worst defensive game of the season from a numbers perspective and from an eye test perspective. It gets to Southeast Melbourne Phoenix. They need to they need to come in. They need to full court press. There needs to be some there needs to be at least one person at all times who is playing 94 feet up the court. They need a guard full court in this game. It was the issue they had the last time against the Southeast Melbourne Phoenix. They did not make them feel them. Abdel Fattah said that in the press conference and he was right. They haven't made a team feel them for weeks, for months. They need to do it in this game. If they actually care about winning a championship or making a plane or, or basically or living up to their potential, they need to act like they care. And that starts on the defensive end and that starts with playing up the floor. At the very least, show us that you give a shit. So the pickup point defensively uh, is not a bad point from you, Dan. We've discussed the defense a lot. It's looked out of sorts for months now, as you pointed to. They haven't won back-to-back -back games since the start of November, I believe it is. So you're really pushing on three months now. Uh, and it was the great Derek Rucker on the broadcast that was discussing the idea of uh, where the Sydney Kings defenders were picking up the Illawarra Hawks uh, perimeter players. And it was at the three-point line or even below sometimes. And it did make me think back to a conversation I had uh, with... Chase Buford when he first was getting used to the NBL and watching tape and trying to figure out how the Sydney Kings team was going to play. And remember, they were an elite defensive team for the two years he was here. Now, they had different personnel. Absolutely understand that. But one of the first things he told me was, he's like, I can't believe how much full-court pressure and, and right up to the half-court line, there is pressure on the ball handler in this league. And he's like, based on what I'm watching, you got to play that way 
or you, you're not going to survive because that's how every team plays defense in this league. Maybe the Kings just, uh, it's a new coach, it's a new coach to the league. Maybe they just, I, I don't know, maybe it just hasn't been figured out. But I don't know whether the the players you've been on the the idea of the urgency and do they have a leader? Do they have a vocal leader? Um, but I was stunned against a rival as well on your home floor. How bad that first half was from the the Sydney Kings, and I was wondering. I, I was wondering whether it is the players that this mix of players that have come together and just haven't been able to figure it out. Are they playing for the coach anymore? Like that is a very difficult thing to say from the outside. But this just this team does not look like they are together, and it doesn't look like they're that interested. But yeah, and and the thing is, I don't know the answer to that question. Um, but it is, I think there's a legitimate criticism that Mahmoud Abdel Fattah has taken just a really long time to understand the way NBL basketball is played. Um, you spoke about Chase Buford going through a similar thing, and he obviously ended with two championships here. But even when I think back to the grand final last season, the difference between game one and game two of that grand final was just Justin Simon playing up and in a little bit more. It, it, it was just the, the effort and basically just getting in. And, and it's the reason why Melbourne United is the best defense in the league. And it's why I think that Shea Ely will be the defensive player of the year. It's because these guys get up and in. They make it really difficult for, for you to get into your stuff. And that's why they're the best defensive team, and that's that. Fo- it follows that they're the best team in the league as well. Um, if you speak to imports around the league, they say something similar to your conversation with Chase, which is, why are these people picking up all the damn time? Um, yes. you, you're trying to bring the ball up the floor. You're an opposing point guard. You're Parker Jackson Cartwright trying to bring <laughs> it up. And then and you have Jordan Crawford in you, right? Jordan Crawford, is he knows the FIBA game. Like, that's the way he plays as well. But then if you're... I remember the game a few weeks ago was Southeast New Zealand and Gary Brown trying to bring the ball up the floor and Parker Jackson Hartwright's up and in and Illawarra can can throw in Davo Hickey or Bawali Bales and these guys are playing 94 feet on you. Brisbane has Sam McDaniel and Isaac White and Mitch Norton. These guys, they can just throw on you and they'll just, they'll hassle you up the floor and it gets to like 12 seconds and you're not in your offense yet. And that's really difficult. And, and that's just maybe something that these Sydney Kings who are very like NBA heavy, they're very talent heavy. I just don't know if they've they've really understood the like the sort of like the it's not it's not even urgency, but it's like the intent that you have to play within the FIBA game. You have to treat every possession like it matters because they do. DJ Hoke's been the interesting one for me. Obviously, missed a fair bit of time through injury this year, but yeah, the Kings were outscored by twenty with him on the floor the other day. Uh, again, we saw different lineups, and now Angus Glover starting. Uh, I I just think that there has been it's been a theme we've discussed a right through the season that the kings have been searching for answers they've been trying to figure it out and to your point with uh Mahmoud, I, I think that i i don't think you can accuse him of not trying things but it just doesn't feel like he's been able to find any answers and i i do wonder the more you change things up and if things are changing every single week when do the players start to go man this guy doesn't he, he doesn't he's not sure and then they feel the uncertainty, and then it filters out through the game. So the Kings, as I said, I'm looking forward to watching this game against the Southeast Melbourne Phoenix. Uh, if you got one more point, I, go ahead. And then I was considering talking about the Illawarra Hawks because they've got a couple of big games this round. Yeah, last thing on, on Abdel Fattah, it feels like there's like a reactivity to the way he coaches and the way he they, he puts together rotations and things like that. Like, McWatch, my watch will have a really good game, and then he'll play a lot the next game, and maybe doesn't really do much, and then the game after that, he doesn't play at all. And so it's just like the, there's no consistency with these rotations. And so 
guys never really get a chance to find the flow. Um, and I think that's something that teams need. And it's sort of the opposite of what teams are doing at this point in the season where teams are really locking in those rotations. We're seeing seven, eight-man rotations. Watch any Perth Wildcats game or any New Zealand Breakers game. These rotations are really narrowed because these teams know that they're in the pointy end of the season. They need to lock in all of their processes and what they what they do. They're acting like every possession matters. Where it still feels like Abdelfatar is just throwing stuff out there to see if it works. And you can't afford to do that at this point in the season. So 0.4 of a percent uh, between Illawarra, uh, New Zealand and Sydney entering this last round. Now, obviously, New Zealand and the Illawarra Hawks play two games. So for the Hawks... Uh, Friday night, you already mentioned that Brisbane and New Zealand game. I think a lot of eyes are going to be on that one. But Illawarra hosting Perth. Uh, this is a big-time game because then they have to come down to Melbourne and they will face uh, Melbourne United in their last game of the season, which is why we discussed how difficult this challenge was going to be. Uh, what's your sense with Melbourne United? Keeping in mind there is a break before the postseason starts, then there's a play-in tournament. Is there any suggestion that they will not be at full strength for that Sunday afternoon game? I, I assume with the break, It'll be uh, full steam ahead. Uh, I expect it to be full steam ahead. I expect them to play everybody. I don't expect them to play regular rotations, though. Uh, it will wouldn't surprise me at all if you see their key guys play, you know, 15 to 25 minutes as opposed to 25 to 30 fights. That's the only thing that I'm keeping an eye on. And that's the sense I get from United. Um, there's It's it's a mixture of risk management, not wanting guys to be out there for too long, not get injured, things like that, but also not wanting to kind of get out, out of rhythm. And I understand there is a feed break, right? So everyone's going to get out of rhythm to an extent. But getting game reps is a really important thing. And I don't think they're going to sacrifice all, a lot of game reps just to get dudes rest or just to keep guys off the floor. I think they're going to try to be as business as usual as possible with the small smidgen of risk management. So it's not something that I really can see any way that it happens. But technically, if you look at the standings, Melbourne could lose both of these games. Perth could win both of these games and there could be a 3% swing. Now, I don't see that happening. The Wildcats have to go to Illawarra, then travel to Tassie from uh, uh, in this final round. So I don't see it happening. But that could be a factor in what happens there under Sunday as well if Melbourne technically need to win to lock up that top spot. Uh, but it's another wrinkle there for the Hawks. You mentioned Brisbane. Now, I think for most people, they are the team that they assume are going to drop out here, particularly with this game in New Zealand and the fact that the percentage is so bad. Uh, I think another wrinkle that, if I was a Bullets fan, I'd be so upset that Tom Abercrombie is re retiring. Firstly, because <laughs> he's a great player and we're all going to be sad that we don't get to watch Tom play. But I have to imagine this is going to be a fired up and emotional building for that final home game in the regular season for New Zealand, maybe the last time the home fans will get a chance to see Tom. Yeah, and it was already going to be a very sort of up and anti sort of game. It was going to, it feels like a must win for both teams, as much as it's not exactly a must win for New Zealand. But New Zealand was already going to be playing with this increased sense of urgency. And now Tom Abercrombie announces his retirement. He'll retire at the end of the season. <laughs> I'm sure there'll be a hucker. I'm sure there'll be different sorts of activations to celebrate his career. Um, and if that doesn't roll you up, roll you up, I don't know what would. And I don't know who's going to be in the house. But man, if some of those like former breakers, if some of those former tall blacks are in there, 
watching on. Um, like I appreciate that maybe some of the Americans on that team and some of the some of the guys on that team maybe don't have the same emotional connection. I think you will feel it immediately as soon as you see some of the stuff that's going to happen in celebration of Tom Abercrombie. Um, so yeah, it, it's one of those games that even at the best of times, I didn't see uh, the Breakers losing. But with all this emotional sort of uh, this emotional catalyst behind them, this like this big gust of wind, uh, it's very tough to see them falling. How did you think the Breakers navigated the first weekend without Anthony Lamb? Obviously, uh, understanding that we're going to have four games over this final two weeks. And I don't think... It, they started the round great. But the game, you know, you play Melbourne and it's probably the worst possible matchup when you know all the attention is going to be on a guard like Parker Jackson Carwright. Yeah. So the thing I'm... I. The thing that was really important for them was to win that first game. Uh, yeah. They have not been amazing on the second day of those back-to-backs. And a lot of it comes down to travel. Maybe it's down to their processes. They've got to figure some stuff out. But they, they just haven't been great on them. And so that game against Melbourne on the Sunday was maybe like a scheduled loss. If they were able to compete and maybe steal a win, awesome. Bonus win. But that first one was the key. That, that win over Illawarra. And I thought they handled it really well. I think we're seeing more and more minutes with Parker Jackson, Kyle Wright, and Will McDowell White on the floor together. And I think it's actually working. McDowell White is shooting the ball really well. Uh, he's getting a lot more on-ball reps as well. So basically all of those sort of like ISO reps that were given to Anthony Lamb, they're sort of split now between McDowell White and Zylan Cheatham. Um, so really impressive for them to pick up that first win against Illawarra. And then going into Melbourne, it was sort of coming off an emotional win all the travel. Zylan Cheatham, I think, was sick coming into that game as well. And so, again, it was a lot of stuff against New Zealand. And credit to them for competing for as much as they did during that game. It was a weirdly officiated game as well. So, like, that's another thing to, to take into consideration there. I don't think even they expected to win that one. Um, going one-on-one was key. And I honestly think going one-on-one is enough this weekend as well. But again, that first one, so this first one against Brisbane, obviously the most important from like a ladder perspective, but also just from the schedule perspective, you want to get that one, get that win out of the way so the pr- pressure is off. Yeah, we spoke a lot about uh, who's going to pick up the slack for the breakers and it was Silent Cheatham and also you know, Finn Delaney who really struggled in that game. He was just 0 for 5 and didn't really have any impact. But in the first quarter when uh, the breakers, it's like, okay, let's feel this out. Let's see if they're going to be impactful here. Parker Jackson Kara didn't necessarily have a good start. And it was all Will McDowell-White. And I was thinking that the podcast we had a few weeks ago when we were discussing what what's going to be next for Will McDowell-White in terms of can he break his way into this team? Can he find a way to have a strong finish to the season? Going back to the, to the preseason, he was the biggest local free agent on the market. And the fact that he decided to stay with New Zealand, one of the things I said is, I don't think he would have pictured this. I don't think this is what he would have thought was going to happen, that he was going to be coming off the bench and really playing a minimal role for this team. When he was signed, the idea was that Will McDowell-White was on the on the rise. He was going to continue to elevate. He was going to be a star in this league. We saw it. So I, I wonder now whether, as you pointed to, some of those minutes with those two guys together, he comes back into the starting lineup. Uh, maybe he is the guy that can be the breakout player for this New Zealand team if they're able to advance past this week. Because we just saw him playing in complete control. Because the only way... Parker Jackson Carwright was having a lot of success in this game 
was if he could just go full-blown Speedy Gonzalez and beat the defense down the floor. Because when they were getting locked <laughs> in that half-court defense, the man Shay Ely, he was making life very, very, very difficult. Yeah, and the thing is, if McDowell White hadn't got injured this season, then we may have been in for an MVP-ish type of season from Will McDowell White because we assume he would have played 25-plus minutes a game and had the bulk of this usage. Um, what he did against United was a really good example of that because, yeah, Shea Ely was playing up and in, Parker Jackson Cartwright, and United overall is a really good defensive team. But in that first quarter, Will McDowell White was tearing apart that United defense. And the only thing that could stop him was foul trouble. Uh, as soon as he was off the floor, then things sort of fell back to the New Zealand Breakers. I want to say McDowell White finished that game with a positive plus minus because his impact uh, was, he was so impactful in that game. Him in the half court changes a lot for this Breakers team. It, it, and it's the, again, it's the, it's the replacement for Anthony Lamb because Anthony Lamb was the circuit breaker of sorts, where if things got a bit stagnant or if maybe the ball wasn't whipping from side to side or whatever, you just have a really talented guy that you can throw the ball into. It's a similar case with McDowell White, where if things aren't going well, if you're not getting stops, so, so Parker Jackson can't run, can't run, you have a Will McDowell White that you just throw the ball to and he can come off on balls and his vision is his, that that's his uh, advantage creation. That's his ability to create advantages in the vision. And then the shot now as well. If that shot continues to hum as it is, then man, if they make the playoffs, even, even without Anthony Lamb, this this emergence of Will McDowell White dusting all off, off all of that rust, that changes this team. We'll see. Uh, I think it's, uh, it, it is, uh, <laughs> I, it just going back to the same conversation we had last week, it's not about the talent, it's not about Will McDowell White because we've already seen him do it in postseason games as well. So I totally agree with what you're saying. It's just, again, I think the, the lack of size and then you lose Anthony Lamb, it wasn't necessarily, it's not like he was the size of a traditional center, but he played physical, he played a little bit bigger and he allowed them to do different things. When they were really struggling offensively in that game, I was just thinking to myself, that would be when Anthony Lamb would just bully ball his way to the basket and get to the free throw line or find a score. And I think... That's going to be the challenge for this team, but they were able to get the win over Illawarra early in the round. Uh, you mentioned the foul trouble for Will McDowell-White, so that was a little bit of crafty play from Matthew Dallavadova on the third foul, who just said, I'm just going to I'm just going to barge into you, and I'm going to demand that Dean Vickerman uses the challenge because I think there were a chance here to take one of the key players off the floor, and then it changed immediately, and Will McDowell-White did finish the game a plus nine. He only played at 22 minutes, so he was 18 minutes on the bench. They lost those minutes. Uh, if he was plus nine, that means they lost those minutes by 22. Uh, so he he was the difference in this game. And a big part of that was because they didn't have the help for Parker Jackson Cartwright because Shaley was outstanding. And in the post game, Joe Lawala-Chul said that it is criminal that he hasn't already won True. a Defensive Player of the Year in the past. Uh, we're not too far away from these awards being announced. Is it, is it Monday night, Olks? But is Shaley, do we wrap it up? Do we lock it in? Do we give it to him, Defensive Player of the Year? I think so. So for context, uh, JLA was staring directly into my soul when he was saying that stuff. Um, oh, a scary I, place. I asked, <laughs> I asked the question, and then United used it in all of their like social things as well. So I, I feel used. Um, but JLA, he was like really, really adamant. Uh, we even like even when the cameras were off, we had a chat about the MVP, and and he's he was backing for Chris Golding. So credit to him for, for standing by his teammates and, and, and supporting them. Uh, when it comes to this award, the reason why I think Shea Ely will win it 
is because last season, when Shea Ely played a handful of games, he was somehow nominated for the award and he still made the top three. So there is already a sense among like the NBL collective, the people who vote for this award, which is like, it's, it's coaches, assistant coaches and captains. Um, they're the ones who vote for the nominees that we have selected. Uh, they voted for Shea Ely last season when he definitely didn't deserve to be in the top three of Defensive Player of the Year because he just didn't play enough games. But I think that gives us a sense of uh, how highly the people around the league rate what Shea Ely does defensively. And they're not wrong. Um, so I think he has helped reputationally and then also demonstrably. All of the data points to him being one of, if not the, the candidate to win the award. Um and Melbourne has the best defense in the league. And I think he is the biggest reason for that. There are lots of reasons for that on their team. I think he's the primary reason why they're the best best defensive team in the league. Yeah, I think the, the point you made in terms of the respect from players and coaches around the league, that's probably why I would agree that he's probably going to get the award. It, it is interesting, though, when you look at uh, the context around what teams have more above average to elite individual defensive players and to me Luke Travers has proven to be a guy that you can put in that category for a number of years and we've seen him unsurprisingly look the best he's ever looked playing in a Melbourne United team that is flanked with other elite defenders that that's that's not a knock on anyone that's just going to help you Ariel Hookporty's came in and being an absolute game changer from a rim protection point of view and what he can do athletically I think he's an elite defender in this league already and the minutes have been down because he started to share with Joe Lawala-Chul. But Ariel Hook-Porty, if he was playing more minutes or if he was the guy that was going to start all season long, I'm pretty sure he'd be on an all-defensive team. And then you do look at some other teams and, and there's a bunch of guys that you could point to, whether it's Doolittle playing in Perth, where there aren't a lot of above-average defenders that have been in that rotation. Or maybe it's Sam McDaniel in Brisbane, who's probably going to be in the mix. I would say the same in Brisbane. They've got decent defensive players. But the point being that I, I think it's an interesting discussion to have. And this would be something good to ask the players and coaches around. You know, How much does your own defense get boosted for someone like Shea Ely playing alongside those guys? I think the track record of what Shea's been able to do in this league for a number of years. Now, we already know he's elite no matter what. Um, but there's no question. They have a bunch of guys. I didn't mention Matthew Delavadova. Joe Lawala-Chul is a good defender in his own right. Um, they're just stacked. Yeah. That's an interesting point that I've never really thought about, which is uh, because we speak about it in the context of MVP and uh, guys taking away votes from each other from an MVP standpoint. And so I'm, so I'm thinking like Tasmania. Like you got... Uh, Milton Doyle and Jordan Crawford and Jack McVeigh and this, they're, I think they're all like on a similar plane, right? Same as like Anthony Lamb and Parker Jackson Cartwright. You can have the similar conversation. But Defensive Player of the Year, I don't, yeah, I don't know if we ever see like the breadth of defensive talent across a roster to the point where do you think that there is, there may be a legitimate chance that <laughs> Shea no. might miss out on this award <laughs> because opposing coaches, captains, and assistant coaches vote for Ariel Hook 40 because he has been an elite rim protector. Or maybe Luke Travis, because of the versatility that makes it difficult for them. Or do you think cooler heads will prevail, everyone will be reasonable, and they'll follow like the, the JLA standpoint of, it is criminal this guy has not won this award before, he's obviously the best defender on the best team. And the way JLA put it was good, which is, 
Shaheli puts in so much work that we feel bad if we don't do it behind him. So I think he's just clearly the leader on that end of the floor, end of the floor. But do you think there's a legitimate consideration into maybe these United guys are going to steal votes from each other? No, I don't. I said no because I thought you were going to ask me. Uh, I thought you were going to ask me if there is any type of possibility that the three finalists will be Travis, Hookporty, and Ely. <laughs> and I was like, no, I don't think that's going to happen. It could. Re- like, it would be fine. I wouldn't. I I'm, wouldn't have a problem with it. I, yeah. <laughs> like Ily and Hookporty. So, for context, I put my votes in. For, if I remember what my votes were, Ily was number one, and Hookporty was number three on my list. So, yeah. in my personal top three. I think I had two United guys. I think that's perfectly fine. I think that's a good way to vote. One other, while we're talking on the awards, and there are some other awards that aren't as interesting to me. Yeah, Coach of the Year is fascinating. Maybe we'll get to that in a bit. But we did have the discussion around All-NBL uh, a few weeks back, and then everyone had their conversations about All-NBL because we are in that season. Uh, I, I mentioned at the time that you know I thought that there were... Uh, four locks in my all NBL first team, which was uh, Mitch Creek, uh, Anthony Lamb, uh, Bryce Cotton, and Chris Golding. Uh, unfortunately, a few days later, that's when the Anthony Lamb injury happened. Has anything possibly changed for you over the last few weeks? Because that was really late in the season. The only real setback for me was what was my game limit? Was it 22 or was it 24? Because my man, Anthony Lamb, he's only got he 22 on? right now. 22. I think that I think that was 20, a cutoff, wasn't it? 22, 22 was your cutoff. Because I said go. 21 is a reasonable cutoff. Um, yeah. So 22 nice. is reasonable. I also don't think, again, there's a level of like humanity that comes when people vote for these awards. In the same way that they changed the next the Rookie of the Year award to Next Gen, people still voted for Sam Wardenberg over Sam Froling because Sam Wardenberg was the Rookie of the Year yeah. frontrunner all season long and it would have been weird to take it away from him. Same with Anthony Lamb. Like, you don't want to punish the guy for having a season-ending injury, uh, especially when he has played enough games to keep him in consideration. And I think everyone understands and respects how elite he was. Um, nothing for me has changed from, like, those four. I'm I'm in the same camp as you. I also have those four. It's just that last spot that is sort of I'm tossing and turning with because, and, and it's a lot of recency stuff coming in. And that, that will be the case with a lot of these awards too. You're going to hear a lot of recency stuff with Coach of the Year as well. Uh, but for this one, like, recency tells me Gary Clark should be in consideration for something like this because of the way he's been able to lift this Hawks team. Parker Jackson Cartwright has been, if he was on a top four team, I think if we spoke about him as the MVP, I don't think that would be an unreasonable consideration. He is someone who is putting up the numbers that warrant him being part of this conversation as well. Um, those are the two dudes that I reckon will end up fighting for that last spot. I, I think it's PJC or Gary Clark. If you talk about guys that have changed in a major way, changed the trajectory of their teams throughout the season, uh, also just reached the 22-game plateau, so we'll probably go above that this week. <laughs> this, uh, this plateau is so important to you. Hey, man, you got to get that 22. And... Uh, <laughs> DJ Vasiljevic has got there now and, you know, hopefully he plays this weekend as well. Um, I know we discussed Isaac Humphries and what he's done in the back end of the season. It's been huge. But there's no question when DJ walked in the door, just something changed. Like, the efficiency hasn't been great. But you knew all of a sudden they had a guy that was going to take over, can just uh, have these explosive quarters and halves and just bring a different 
energy level to the 36ers. Like, they were a team that was stuck in mud. They were going nowhere, and he did completely change it, even if they weren't able to dig themselves out and get to the playing tournament. So I wouldn't be surprised whether he gets one of those, the, the fourth or fifth spot in the first team or a second team. I think he's got to be in consideration. The the thing about the Sixers is you got those three guys. Uh, it could, because it's not just Humphreys and it's not just Vasiljevic, but Trey Kill has arguably been the best of them all. And so him being perhaps more involved or him like finding his form, that has to be taken in consideration as well. And then you have to think how much of these coaches and assistant coaches and captains consider how much consideration they're putting into winning. Um, is is Mitch Creek maybe going to drop into the second team as much as I don't think he should. I think he's the, if you balance winning versus like impact and effectiveness, I think the effectiveness does outweigh a lot of it. Um, but it, I, I, it wouldn't completely surprise me if maybe he drops to a second team because he's not on a winning team. He's on the worst team in the league. I wonder if the same thing might happen for those 36ers guys because they, they're they not going to make the playoffs and maybe you're going to reward some of the dudes at the top. Like, do you pick a Vasiljevic over like Milton Doyle, for example? No. And what I was going to say is that I, I saw a, a good friend, Peter Hooley, uh, tweet something to the similar effect going back a week or so ago now, just asking you know, fans how much should winning play a part in this voting and I was going to comment, uh, but I thought I'd save it. Maybe we get, we get to our column at some point in time and we, we discuss this idea. But under a usual year, I would say, yeah, you should take into account winning and you, your team has to be having some level of success. That's not a blanket rule. It doesn't mean you can't get in. But if you're picking multiple guys that are on teams with, with bad records, then that normally doesn't work just based on history. But we've said it before. There's only three teams that have a winning record in the league this year. So I think that this year is different because as much as <laughs> Illawarra and Brisbane and these teams have played well, the Hawks have been outstanding for a long time now, but they've only won two more games than Adelaide who are in ninth. And they've only won three more games than Southeast Melbourne who are on the dead last bottom of the ladder. So uh, to me, I just don't think, I know some teams are going to get to the plane in summer, but I don't think there's enough separation in the standings for me to go, well, I'm just picking this guy because the team was better because they weren't that much better. Yeah, and, and I, I agree with you to an extent, and, and it's the way I look at like the defensive numbers this season as well. The difference between like the third best defensive team and the eighth is like the, it's like two points per 100 possessions. It's the same stuff. Um, yeah. And, and I, I appreciate it's a similar thing with this too. Um, I had to explain this to JLA after the press conference. Um, he, he, he stood up and he asked, it was a very interesting question. It was uh, last season, the MVP went to the best player on the best team. Yeah. Uh, and that was Xavier Cooks. Even though Xavier Cooks's numbers weren't outstanding, they were good enough and he was on the obvious best team. So he won MVP. And so JLA asked, well, why isn't Chris Holding in that same boat? And I had to explain to him, like, there is a, there is like a balance here. You have these two different pillars, right? It's, it's winning like team success and you have like your individual effectiveness. And Bryce Cotton's individual effectiveness is extremely high, and his team success is very high. Chris Golding's uh, individual effectiveness is very high, and his team success is the highest. And so, in my mind, I think Bryce overall is is higher. But I I appreciate where he's coming from, and it's a similar thing here. It's it's how much how much are we valuing like the place on the ladder? 
I think that being in like the bottom three, as much as I appreciate it's like just two games, two or three games behind, which isn't that much. I think that there is like a material difference between being in the bottom three and being in like the top four. And so if all yeah. things equal, if it's Vasily versus Doyle, for example, I'm just using those two as like a bottom three team and a top three team. If all the all else equal, I think you pick the player on the winning team, even if that winning is just by a slim margin. I would have said, look, part of the problem is you, Joe. You're too good, and and <laughs> you, you you're still on votes. But sorry, Joe, you've only played 19 games, so it's <laughs> you'll get to 20, man. You'll get to 20, which is two off 22, which is man. I don't now. We're gonna have fights over this 22 thing but no i agree with you. I, we should have told him that it's like oh Jale, it's kind of your fault sorry man well it's interesting because i i'm sure part of joe while a tool inside his body he thinks that he's an mvp caliber player and he is because we've seen him absolutely tear games apart uh i think that there's a little bit of a difference with xavier cooks as well because i'm not saying that chris golden isn't impactful in other ways because the the gravity he pulls from the opposition defense allows other guys to have open looks and be able to score because he is the biggest perimeter threat in the league. So he impacts games more than just scoring, but certainly scoring is what you think of when you think of Chris Golding and shooting. Whereas Xavier Cooks, I think it was pretty widely understood that he wasn't necessarily a guy that was going to get you 25 points, but he was going to facilitate the entire offense was going to go through him. And he was going to be a complete game changer defensively. He could block shots. He would come up with steals and he would start the fast break in the transition. Like everything was about Xavier Cooks. Um, so I think it's part of that as well. And I actually uh, like the fact that Xavier Cooks won the MVP last year, despite the fact that his box score numbers didn't jump off the page. Like, I think that's cool. I think that he got the credit for being an impact player beyond the box score. Yeah. Uh, the, the last player that won an MVP like that was maybe like Andrew Bogut back when he was right. with the Sydney Kings. And it was a similar thing where his numbers weren't outstanding. And Bryce Cotton scored way more points. Bryce Cotton was probably the leading scorer in the league at that point. But Andrew Bo everyone knew Andrew Bogut's impact defensively. He was yeah. the best defensive player that season. And everyone knew what he brought offensively, even if it never, even if it didn't always amount to counting stats, everyone, everyone understood the impact. And, and I feel like there should be a bigger appreciation because of those sorts of, those sorts of outcomes of the nuance that people are putting into these awards. It's not just like the sixth man of the year award where it's just the guy who scores the most points wins it, which is generally the case. I, I feel like we treat other awards in a more nuanced way. We look at the MVP. It's not just because Bryce is the leading scorer in the league. It's because of like a whole range of factors that Bryce brings to the table. In this, And then that's why we're con that's why Chris Golding is in consideration. Even though he's not the second leading scorer in the league, there's a consideration into his impact on a winning team. I feel like there is more nuance to this. And I think after after our chat, I think JLA understood that to an extent. Uh, as much as he still wasn't completely happy, because I think most of us in that room still sided with, hey, it's probably Bryce. Hey, man. He's going to be popular in the locker room. When he went back in there, he's like, <laughs> you boys got to listen to this press conference, man. Shay Ely. <laughs> Shay Ely, I was looking after you, my friend. So, hey, I like it. That's that's the ultimate teammate stuff there. Uh, Coach of the year, surely, my man Scotty Roth will walk away with another one, will he? Or... Kane, no, no. <laughs> I, I, you, know, you know what? In any any other year, this was the Jack Jumper's first season. Then he'd he'd probably win this one. Well, we're just but, sick of we're sick of Scott Roth being one of the great coaches of the last. Yes, I'm calling it the last decade. He hasn't won a title. We've had some big names coaching in the league, but 
he's been outstanding to do it year on year and have you know a little bit of roster turnover and a, a bit of adversity with with Halfall on the way. Um, obviously, he signed the contract extension. You uh, broke that news a little a little while ago here. So you don't think Scotty Roth? Are you where are you leaning with the coaches? I I'm on the Dean Vickenen train. Yeah, with this, so honestly, it's fair. Um, I like, I, and I appreciate his roster. He's got a really good roster. Uh, they are super talented, but it's I, for me, it's more than that. It's they have been the best defensive team in the league the entire season, and they have not lost back-to-back games. That is an unbelievable achievement. I think that speaks a lot to his like his capacity as a coach. The fact that they didn't drop two games in a row. I think that's unbelievably impressive. Um, there will be recency bias because the Perth Wildcats started really poorly and went on this really good stretch. They've dropped a few of late and they haven't looked amazing. But like I think John really will get a lot of love because of that. And obviously Justin Tatum too. The Tatum thing is real. I, Tatum would be my second, my, almost my close yeah. first because of uh, his, just purely his record. I have to check. He might be 11 and 5 as head coach. If he started the season 11 and 5, they'd be in first place. Or first or second place, like they would be up there. No, every other coach is hovering around like 500-ish outside of Vickerman and really, and so being 11 or five is an unbelievable achievement. So I don't, I don't know how much people are going to take into take into account how many games he coached. He doesn't reach your 22 game threshold, but I think he's coached enough that he should be in consideration there. But I got Vickerman up top. Well, that's a great point. I didn't think about the 22 game threshold for coaches. <laughs> Tatum. Tatum. It matters, bro. It matters. He go, he's gone down. Tatum, after a, a <laughs> late run. He's petitioned the league to extend the regular Ooh. season. He needs another six games. <laughs> yeah, I do believe the Hawks, I think they were two and seven uh, when he took over. So that would be 11 and six uh, since Tatum took over. Uh, so the the finalists here then, these are going to be super boring. Obviously, I would make the case for Scott Roth. I think, it, again, Tassie gets overlooked a little bit. Um, with the consistent success that they've had. I think they've had an awesome season. They lost a bunch of close games, haven't been blown out once all year long. I, I think they deserve a lot of credit for the offense, for the defense, the changes they've made. So look, I would have Scott Roth in there in my finalists. Obviously, Dan Vickerman would be there. And I think part of having a great season as a coach is going through really difficult times and some adversity. And John really ticks that box as well as any other coach because you know Tatum walked in and he took over the job, uh, and that's obviously challenging, and you don't normally see this kind of turnaround. But really, had to work through it on a fly and got players to to play different roles and change the lineup. And yeah, Bryce Cotton went absolutely bananas and playing him 40 minutes a game is sometimes a nice tonic. Uh, but I, I think that is the, the, the type of season uh, that could lead to an award like this. And I think it's been cool to see him get some kudos towards the back end of the season. Yeah, and it's, uh, it's because of all of the the flack he took at the start of the season. Why yeah. it's cool that people have come around to an to this extent. Um, and I, I agree with you. I appreciate the idea of them being in this like absolute hole and make and, and him making changes in order to get them out of it. So like when you talk about coach of the year, like we saw him do the coaching on the fly. Like we saw those decisions yeah. get made yeah. in a material way, and and the outcomes shifted because of that. Uh, the reason why I still think it's Vikram is because. He coached in such a way that he never let them get in a hole. Like that's that to me is like the ultimate success that you can have as a coach, which is 
one game is enough for you to make adjustments or, or make sure your team doesn't continue to fall into a hole. Like, there was always a counter. There was always a fix that he could make immediately to make sure that they were consistently the best team in the league. And I think that's like, the co coach of the year is always like reality over expectations or expectations over, what is it? Reality over, no, reality over expectations. And I think United was expected to be the best team in the league. And I think Vickerman even exceeded that to an extent by not even letting them look like not the best team. There was never, there was never really a question. Um, whereas like Perth Wildcats were expected to be pretty good. And the Jack Jumpers were expected to be like super above average. And that's what they are. So I feel like the reality matched the expectations there. You didn't expect the Jack Jumpers to be above average. I'm holding you. Yes, I did. <laughs> above average? Above average is the is the short is the smallest bar for me to for me to fulfill. That, that is that is the shortest bar. I'm I've cleared that. Above average, yes. I've become, you know, when you yeah. see the, the fan bases where, like, nobody gives my team credit. Nobody, nobody I will, miss. and and everyone's already saying they're all really good. I'm going to start doing that to you with yeah. the Jack. Yeah, over and the they said few. Steph Curry couldn't shoot. Exactly. Come on, man. Until they yeah. get eliminated, the Jack jumpers. That is, and. uh Maybe it won't happen. But what about Honestly, Melbourne yeah. United and uh, Brad Newley? So we mentioned Tom Abercrombie uh, a little bit earlier. He'll, he's still got a few games to play. Brad Newley maybe too, but we haven't seen him playing too often. You sat down with him. I just caught that a, a few hours ago, so I haven't listened to it. I don't know much about what you chatted about. Um, but who knows what could be in store for the next few weeks here. But there, is there any uh, tease you want to give to... As some of the listeners out there that might want to catch up with this story, obviously being one of the the more notable names in Australian basketball over the last couple of decades. Yeah, we had a chat yesterday, um, and the full chat will be on YouTube on the ESPN Australia YouTube channel at some point today. Um, so go ahead and, and watch that whole thing. It's really interesting, and when I speak to people around Australian basketball, there's like there's not enough of an appreciation of how good Brad Newley was, uh, it's, and it's because he just wasn't present here. He yeah was present here to start his career, was really, really impressive as a young player in the NBL, got drafted to the Rockets and immediately began a career in Europe. And so all of the things he achieved while in his prime, or at least the majority of his prime, were abroad, right? And there wasn't really a way to like watch those games consistently or really keep track of them. This was like a decade ago. Um, and so we weren't really keeping track of things abroad as we do now. Um, and so he achieved a lot overseas. He was... He's up there with with Dave Anderson and Matt Nielsen as, as like the OGs of Australians playing in Europe. Um, so he played the bulk of his career there, came back to the NBL, was an all-NBL player again when he came to Sydney Kings. Um, but he is just like a multiple-time boomer, has played in multiple major international tournaments. He has been, he's one of the best sort of wings, like wing players that Australia has ever produced. Um, uh, but there's the one thing is that he's not won a championship at any domestic level. So throughout his start in the NBL, uh, back back far enough that he was teammates with John Reilly and those guys over in yep. Townsville, through Europe, uh, he just has never happened to win a domestic championship of any sort. Uh, he was very close with Sydney in 2020, but then COVID hit, and that was the title that COVID forced the NBL to award the Perth Wildcats that championship. That was his big chance. That was a team with Jay Sean Tate and Didi Luzada and Andrew Bogut and Xavier Cook. They had all these guys. They were probably favored to win it. He wasn't able to win. That would have been his first championship. 
Now he's with Melbourne United. He'll retire at the end of this season. He has an opportunity with Melbourne to win his first ever championship. And so if there wasn't reason enough for them to play with an extra sense of urgency to win a title, having an Australian legend retiring on your team, the opportunity to potentially win him his first domestic title, that would be a very cool thing for Melbourne. And that, that would be a very fitting way for Newley to, Newley to finish his career. Yeah. Completely wild when you just think about how many different uh, you know, teams he's played on and opportunities he would have had uh, along the way. And who knows uh, what could be next? I don't know whether he wants to get into coaching. I'm not sure whether you spoke about it, but he is a very, very prominent name when you speak to anyone about who would be a highly, highly entertaining media member. Brad Newley's name comes up very, very quickly, but I guess we'll see. I imagine uh, he's probably got plenty of options because he's a pretty, uh, pretty talented guy. More than just playing basketball, uh, that's for sure. But as you pointed to, uh, keep your eye on the ESPN Australia YouTube page. That chat will go up there and you'll be able to catch Olgs and Brad Newley there. We'll see what happens over the next few weeks. What do you reckon? We wrap it up and just brace ourselves for what could potentially happen across this weekend? Let's wrap it up. So just for everyone at home, you've got New Zealand, Brisbane. If Brisbane wins, they're through to the play-in. If Brisbane loses, then they need the Sydney Kings to lose against the South East Melbourne Phoenix. Uh, if Brisbane wins, then New Zealand will have to beat Adelaide. Uh, they are behind on percentage, so they would need either Sydney to lose, or for them to, or for, for New Zealand to get a really good percentage boost against Adelaide, or for Illawarra to lose both of their games and lose a bunch of percentage too. I hope I hope I've made this clear to everyone, and I hope I've helped. No, and you've confused yourself, but that is a perfect way to end this podcast. As I said, right from the top. Yeah. Uh, subscribe, turn the notifications on. Get involved in the show. Hit us both up on social media. If you like, let us know what was our worst take of the podcast. You probably got a few options there. But we'll be back next week. We'll know who's in the postseason, in the playing tournament at the very least. We'll have plenty to talk about there. Make it. Uh, check out all your basketball news, I should say, on ESPN.com.au. And plenty of programming Coming up this weekend on ESPN, All-Star Weekend. Going to be in Indy. I'll be there. I'll see what friends I can catch up with along the way. We'll have a lot of fun there. So make sure you keep it on ESPN for all your basketball news. Kane Pittman, Olga Nulic. This has been the ESPN Aussie Hoops Hour. We'll speak to you all next week.